Um, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we are, we are finishing up our series on the doctrines that grew out of the Protestant Reformation. And we call those the five solas of the Reformation, Latin for alones, the five alones. Right? The five solas of the Reformation, the scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone. And these are all things um, that uh, doctrines that we still hold to today. In fact, most Protestants, even outside of our own tradition, in some way resonate with these doctrines. So we're starting in verses 23, and we're going to be reading through to chapter 11, verses 1. So 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11 and 1. Hear the word of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, in other words, you want to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our sermon title this morning, The Glory of God Alone. Do all things to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, and give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So then, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your holy word, this message from 1 Corinthians. Illuminate our hearts with the power, anointing, and unction of the Holy Spirit, and fill this room, O oh God, with understanding and edification and power as the word is unpacked, Lord God. We pray that you would transform our hearts, convict us, and convince us of its truth, and let us leave this place different truly different and changed in the way we came in. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Well, don't go to the next slide. Go back, go back, go back. No, no, go back, go back, go back. Uh, okay, just leave it. That's okay, that's okay, just leave it. I wanted a punch, you know, sometimes you want the, the slide to come at the last. Well, here it is. <laughs> you may not know what you're looking at. In fact, uh, if, if you... If you know, raise your hand what you're looking at. Not you, not you. Okay, you know what you're looking at. Okay. Uh, well, um, there is this guy uh, named uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. And you've heard of Bach. Bach is an amazing, amazing, uh, was an amazing musician. And um, they said about philosophy 
that all philosophy and philosophers were a footnote to Plato. You could say the same about Bach, about classical music, that, that all classical music in some ways is a footnote to Bach. And Bach, uh, his older uh, brother was a church organist. And he decided very young one day that he wanted to play the organ and uh, taught himself how to play and became, uh, at a very young age, um, a church organist himself and was incredible, was incredible. And as he shared his pieces that he composed, um, some people thought he was showing off. His music was so complex and it was like nothing anyone had ever heard before that he was initially accused with being too fancy. In other words, it was too impressive. It was, it was too complex. In other words, you're, you're too good. And he was accused of doing it for his own fame. He was showing off. That's what people said of him. But he knew in his heart that the music he composed wasn't for himself. It was to glorify God. And he felt that his musical compositions, and this is one of them. This is a picture of actually one of his uh, compositions. He felt that it was for the glory of God and to remind himself that everything he did was to give God glory. At the bottom of every sheet, when he was finished, he wrote this in Latin, Sole Deo Gloria. Or sometimes it said, just said SDG. And that was his way of reminding himself that everything he did, that the gifts and talents God had given him, were all to glorify God. Now, um, I initially had an actual piece of video of someone playing an organ, one of his pieces, and it was complex. It went on for two and a half minutes, and somehow, some way in the whole transmission of things, we weren't able to get it up there. Uh, but um, if you heard some of his pieces, you would automatically recognize it. Well, this doctrine uh, of for the glory of God alone that Bach held to is a doctrine that grew out of the Reformation, and it was something that um, helped to be a good bookend on the back end of the doctrines that grew out of the Reformation, because the first doctrine that grew out of the Reformation was really this idea of grace alone. And we've talked about it over the last few weeks, myself and Dean and Josh, we've preached through uh, what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, once you hear those liberating doctrines, that our salvation is a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he's accomplished on the cross, it's liberating. It frees you. It frees you not to be bound with all ec these extra-biblical rules and where, where you're adding things on top of the scriptures... And you're also freed from the idea that we're justified by a works righteousness. But the doctrine of sola deo gloria was a necessary doctrine to provide some guide rails or guardrails to Christian liberty. Because if we're not careful, if Christians aren't careful, we can take this liberty to... to, to to mean that our entire lives revolve around us and that we're free to do anything we want to do, which is something that the Corinthians actually were struggling with. The Corinthians had fallen into this idea that, they, that all things were lawful, that they could do anything they wanted to do. And so Paul had to speak into this misunderstanding that they had. You know, sometimes as Christians, we can take one doctrine and run with it so far in a direction 
that we trample all over other doctrines. And what I mean is really the word of God. We can take one passage of scripture and divorce it from the rest of God's word and find ourselves doing violence to other passages of scripture. And so <clears throat> uh, I want us to see three things this morning. Um, we're going to see the principles for using Christian freedom or liberty, uh, the purpose for using Christian freedom, and the pattern of Christian freedom. Because the question looming over the text this morning is, if we're free, what are we free to do? How should we use that freedom? Um, so under number one, the principles for using Christian freedom, there are four subpoints we're going to look at. Edification over gratification. Liberty over legalism. Um, excuse me, others over self. Liberty over legalism. And condescension over condemnation. So let's look at the first. Edification over gratification. And in verse 23, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, as we read through the text a minute ago, you may have seen quotation marks under the phrase, All things are lawful. In fact, if you have your Bible open in front of you, I'm assuming there should be some quotation marks. Well, the reason is because this saying, all things are lawful, was something the Corinthians had just kind of made up. It wasn't something that Paul himself was saying, and he doesn't exactly disagree with it either, but it was a saying among the Corinthians. Now, if you know, if you've ever read to the book of Corinthians, the church in Corinth was an utter and absolute mess. I mean, it was bad. It was really bad. Uh, there were inappropriate relationships between people. Uh, they were coming into the church, and for the Lord's Supper, they were getting drunk. You know, they were drinking all the wine, and Paul had to give them the proper practice and show them what it really, what, it, what the, the, the right way to come to the table. Uh, in fact, in some ways, we're kind of grateful that they were doing it wrong because it gave us an opportunity, give, gave Paul an opportunity to tell us what the right practice of communion is. And the Corinthians, who were really in a bad way, all of these former pagans bringing some of these convictions, these practices into the church, Paul, that's the occasion that Paul has to write the letter to the Corinthians. And so he capitalizes off of this famous saying among the Corinthians, all things are lawful. And he says, yeah, all things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up or edify. And if Paul were speaking to us today, he might say something like this. You may have the right to do something, but that doesn't mean you should. Now, obviously, we're talking about the gray areas of Christian living outside of scriptural prohibition. Does that make sense? We're talking about areas that the Bible doesn't address specifically or prohibit as sins, but are kind of like gray areas. And so he says, look, you may have the right to do something, but that doesn't mean you should. Again, we're tying it back to the context of Christian liberty. How should we use our Christian liberty? Right? Should we care if something we do offends another brother or another sister? Should we care that though something may not be uh, displeasing in the sight of God... It offends an unbeliever and maybe puts a blockade for my opportunity to share the gospel. Right? Using our liberties 
our Christian liberties for the glory of God. Well, verse 23, the second part says, All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, the issue that Paul is addressing is, and I don't want to linger here too long, but it's the issue of eating food offered to idols. Now, that's just not an issue for us today, right? Um, There aren't pagan temples on every corner, and typically when you go to the meat market at Deerberg's or Schnucks or um, Straub's, you know, all you're concerned about is it's a good cut of meat. You really don't care what anybody did with it before it came across the counter and they wrapped it. But in the ancient world, that was a really big deal because people offered their meat to their idols. I remember back home in California, there was this Thai place. I love Thai food. And there was this Thai place. And when you walked into the Thai place, they had a shelf with a cup of rice and a little glass of drink. And it was before a little idol. And they had these kind of electric incense. They weren't real incense, but it was essentially... It was, a, it was a restaurant, and they were offering their food to their god, their idol. My father would not go into that place. My father would not eat be, there because he said they offer their food to idols. I refused to eat there. Well, I loved eating there, but I wouldn't bring that food to my dad. I wouldn't take my dad there. I would, you know, I just, he just, he had a conviction. He wouldn't go there. And when I bought the food, I wouldn't bring it to my dad's house because it offended him. And... Um, this is the issue that Paul is talking about, and it may seem distant, distant from us, but there are a lot of modern correlations for us. Um, things that may offend one brother or sister or that don't offend you. Um, you could use some examples like rated R movies or alcohol, neither which is specifically prohibited by Scripture, Some people would say, look, some of the best movies ever made are rated R movies. And some people would say, well, I have a conviction. I will not go see a rated R movie. Same thing with alcohol. Psalm 104 celebrates wine as a gift from God to make men's hearts merry, but some people have struggled with alcohol. And so being sensitive to the ways in which each other may or may not be offended by certain things is a way directly that we glorify God. And here's what's interesting about this passage of Scripture is... Paul doesn't say, look, just glorify God in everything you do. He says it, but he gives us a context. And he illustrates this idea of glorifying God with our liberties. See, it's our liberties. It's our freedoms. Especially as Americans in the Western world. Because our culture, since the Enlightenment, is predicated on this idea of radical individualism. And rights, right? One of our founding documents certainly is the Bill of Rights. Here's all the rights we have. In fact, we have so many rights. And Paul had a similar experience with the Corinthians. They were freed from works righteousness by the grace of God, but they had taken that doctrine and run so far in the opposite direction that they were now doing things without respect or consideration of their neighbor. They were doing things that weren't necessarily prohibited by Scripture, but they were doing things that they were saying, well, I have the right to. That was their their primary motivation, not the glory of God. I have a right to do it. Okay, but Paul is saying the glory of God 
The glory of God ought to be the primary motivation in all that a believer does. The glory of God. We ought to be seeking the glory of God. And one way to do that is to seek others' edification instead of our own gratification. Edification over gratification. A lot of things gratify me, but if they don't edify my brother in his presence, I won't do it. Back to the rated R and alcohol thing. If rated R movies violate your conscience, I'm not going to pop in the matrix when you're over or whatever. If alcohol violates your conscience, I'm not going to break out the bottle of wine when I have you over for dinner. We'll drink fruit punch or Coca-Cola or water or lemon water. So here's a good rule for us. When we're faced with a decision about a practice, we should first ask, number one, if we have the right to do it. Does it violate Scripture? If Scripture doesn't forbid it, the answer is yes. We have a right to do it. But the next question should be, is it profitable and edifying and upbuilding to you and to others? If the answer to both questions is yes then we can do it for God's glory. So there's the test. How do we know if we can do something for God's glory? One, does Scripture prohibit it? No. Okay, you have the right to do it. Does it build you up and build your neighbor up? Yes. If the answer is yes, do it. If the answer is no, don't do it. It's really simple. That's how you glorify God. The second principle for using Christian freedom for the glory of God is others over, over the self. Preferring others over ourselves. Verse 24 says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And this is something that um, we probably particularly struggle with in our context. There's a book called Death by Suburb. And it talks about the fact that most of us go to work every day, we come home, we hit that garage door button, the door goes up, we pull in, it closes. And that's it for the rest of the world. We don't talk to our neighbors. I mean, you know, you may wave at them. Hey, you know, I forgot what he did. I know he's got a couple kids. I haven't talked to him in a couple years. I mean, you know, it's just, that's just our, our culture. Um, I remember when Maribel and I, when we first got married, bought a house when we were 20, when I was 20, and uh, it was a neighborhood in transition, and they built this massive, massive, like, you know, 500-unit low-income apartment complex down the street, and it changed our neighborhood, and the neighborhood kind of got pretty bad. And, but everybody was really friendly, but, you know, you might get your car broken into at night. And we moved to a different side of town because we wanted to be in a place with better schools for the kids, and we moved into, like, this better part of town, you know, eight miles away, and it was clean, and it was nice, and it was safe, but nobody talked to you. You know, no one was going to break into your car, but no one was going to talk to you either. And so when we think about seeking the good of our neighbor over ourselves, you've got to know your neighbors, which most of us really don't. And so that's something in Paul's day that was not as big of a problem as it is for us. But the ethic here is preferring others over ourselves. And this is a, this is a principle that's kind of contrary just to human nature. We're selfish people. We want to do what's good for us. We tend to make decisions in our own self-interest. And that's human nature. I would say it's sinful human nature after the fall. We could probably posit that before the fall in the garden, that is not the way the human heart was wired. But that's how our heart is wired now. 
We just make decisions that are best for us. We don't really care about how it affects other people. That's their problem. But that's not the ethic that we're given from Scripture to glorify God. We're to prefer others over ourselves. Last week when Josh was preaching, he preached from Philippians 2, which says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more important than yourself. That's hard to do. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look, of course we're going to take care of our own interests. If I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. You know, if I'm cold, I'm going to put a jacket on. You know, we bought a bed recently because we couldn't sleep in the one we had. Yeah, of course you're going to do things for your own interests. But the ethic is don't do all things only for your own interests, but seek the welfare of others. Seek to, to, to further and benefit, further the interests of others, not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. And so the question for us regarding using our Christian liberty is when is the last time you gave something up for someone else? Or you went out of your way to prevent yourself from enjoying some pleasure for someone else, to benefit someone else. You might be thinking, well, what, 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 what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, you know, I could go down a laundry list of things. You know, we touched on it a moment ago, but maybe something that you, you really enjoy, but you've given up to bless and be a blessing to someone else. There are things that, that my wife doesn't like that are perfectly fine as far as God is concerned, but um, I've had to come to grips with whether I want to continue those things, things that grieve her. And um, the question for all of us is, can you think back on a time when you gave something up for someone else? Or even thought of how um, something you do may cause others to stumble. And the whole purpose of all of this is the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Because we'd all like to think that our skeptical neighbor or unbelieving coworker is offended at the message of the gospel, but sometimes people are just offended at you. Sometimes you do things that, that, becomes a, that we can do things that become a barrier for people to hear the gospel. And as far as Paul is concerned, the gospel and the glory of God are preeminent over all the things we may have a right to do or some of the things we have a right to do. You know, we can treat our theology like the Bill of Rights. You know, here's all the things I can do and don't tell me, don't dare you tell me that I can't. Not only our theology, but, you know, our citizenship as Americans. You know, here's all the things I can do, don't tell me I can't. But if we look to the good of others over ourselves, that's not the attitude we'll have because we're seeking the glory of God. The third principle for li using liberty for the Lord's glory is that of following liberty over legalism. Now, here's the flip side of all of this. Because it may sound like what I've been saying up to this point is your conscience needs to be bound by others' convictions. Not true. You do have liberty. You can maintain your liberty. And so to some degree, this counterbalances the previous one. The welfare of others should be our first concern, 
but their standards shouldn't rule everything we do. Really good example is I remember years ago, um, back in California, I was at a church and um, and a, a, a sister came up to me and um, I wore a suit and tie. This is the church culture we were in at the time. I preached every Sunday morning in a suit and tie, and a woman came up and she shared with me how she was at a really she was at a church where everybody dressed up. And it grieved her, and so she started wearing you know, jeans and a T-shirt, which was fine. I don't care, care what she wore. And she was talking about how much she was liberated because the church she was at was very legalistic, and it was like the standard that they impose on everybody, and she ended up leaving, and you know, she found her way, to, her, her way to our church. And I said, you know, that's just so great. You know, that's, I'm really, really glad to hear that you were freed from that legalism. And the very next Sunday, I showed up in my suit and tie, and I got up and preached. And, and I came down afterwards, and she was in tears. She was offended that I had not abandoned my formal clothes, you know, because of her conviction. I thought, well, look, you want to show up in sweats and house slippers. I don't care. But, you know, I like wearing a suit. <laughs> so I preached in a suit and tie. And she wanted my conscience to be bound by her conviction. And so the flip side is, well, that's not right either. So just because you may be offended by something, in Paul's context, he's talking about food. Um, doesn't mean that that's my permanent conviction, even if I don't do it in your presence. So here's the balance of Christian liberty. We still have our liberties, but but we're mindful of other people, but their convictions don't have to bind our conscience. And so um, he makes this statement um, that if you you, um, go to someone's house and they offer you food, eat it for conscience sake, but if a brother is present, and the brother says, this meat was offered to idol and idols, and now you recognize that that person's offended, Paul says, don't eat, not on account of your conscience, but his, to not offend him. So in the first verse, in the first verse, it was when you go to the marketplace, if someone's offering you meat, just, just buy it. Don't ask any questions about it. For conscience sake, just, just buy it. But if you are invited by an unbeliever to their house for dinner and they serve you meat and somebody, a brother, points out that it's been offered to idols and he's offended by it, then follow along with him. See, there's, you just, you've got to be sensitive to the situation. But then Paul adds at the same time, don't let your conscience be bound by someone else's convictions. And the whole reason for this is that... Um, The grace of God is not rigid on one side or the other. It's not libertine, neither is it legalistic. We're freed by the grace of God to know that we're not made right in God's sight by by a works righteousness. At the same time, some people are still really convicted in their hearts by doing certain things. And so we want to be sensitive to that, always with an eye to glorify God. And so what God is saying, if you, you want to glorify me, love your brother. Love your sister. Be sensitive to your neighbor. You want to glorify me? Think about the people next to you. Think about how you can serve them and edify them and build them up. And come alongside them. The fourth principle is also illustrated by um, a hypothetical meal at an unbeliever's house. And I just touched on it. I kind of got ahead of myself. But I'll just read it. And this is condescension over condemnation. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you 
and for the sake of conscience, not yours, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Um, in the first century, there were a lot of hang-ups about food. We've, we've talked about this already a little bit. If you were a Jew, you kept kosher, and the last thing you did was eat meat offered, offered to idols. But as the church grew and became more Gentile and non-Jewish, you had people coming into the church with pagan practices who were used to eating meat offered to idols. It was no big deal. Most of the meat at the marketplace had previously been offered to an idol. And so this is what he's talking about. Now, you have to work out in your own context and situation what the modern-day equivalent to that is. And it might look different for different people in different contexts. What is the one thing as Christians that we really stay away from but the world could care less about? You have to think through that. And at what point is it beneficial to not make a stink over it? Or should we make a stink over it? One of the interesting moves that Paul makes here in this passage is try not to offend an unbeliever by making a lot of, not by being hung up about a lot of things, but if a brother is present, their offense should be more important to you than the unbeliever. So be sensitive to those things. There's kind of a, um, a fluidity here that he's talking about. So don't needlessly offend an unbeliever by rejecting his food. But if a brother is present and he points out to you the food is offered to idols um, in the pagan's home, then don't eat it, not for your conscience sake, but for his. Now, this, is, this has nothing to do necessarily with having certain tastes. Uh, I grew up with a Jewish mother. I grew up eating lamb. And we had a couple Nigerian families in the church years later. And I shared with them that I grew up eating lamb. And they said, oh, you've got to come over for goat. I said, sure, like, you know, okay. And, and, and if you don't know Nigerian people, they're the most hospitable people like you've ever met. If you go over to a Nigerian's home, you better bring an appetite. And even if you're full, you better eat because they're going to make a spread for you. And so they made all this food, and all, most of the food was fantastic, but they had goat. And it wasn't like, you know, specially made. It was like literally they just hacked off a piece of goat, put it in the oven, they just gave me this chunk of goat. And I ate it because I, I didn't want to offend them. And it wasn't a matter of, you know, them not receiving Christ or the gospel, but I just wanted to be sensitive. Now, Maribel, my wife, just said, sorry, I'm not touching it. But I ate it, and uh, it's a unique taste. Um, but that was the issue in Paul's day. There are issues in our day that we have to wrestle with and work through. Our own freedom shouldn't be judged by another person's conscience, but we should be sensitive to offending other people's consciences needlessly. Someone's convictions shouldn't bind my conscience. My freedom is not dictated by the things you do or don't allow in your own life, but when we're together, I'm going to be mindful of those things. I was at a church planner's retreat recently, and there was another church planner here in St. Louis who's a buddy of mine I went through seminary with who once, before he became a believer, struggled with alcoholism. And um, 
we were out to eat and someone got a glass of wine and said, do you mind? And he said, no, 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 it's okay. That's just a simple example of being sensitive to other people's consciences. But now uh, I want to look at the purpose of Christian freedom. So we've talked about principles. Next slide. We've talked about principles of Christian freedom. And here in verse 31 and verse 32, we have the purpose of those principles. And this is listen to what Paul says in verse 31. So, whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, trying not to give offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. In other words, everyone. Jews, Greeks, meaning Gentiles, or the church, which is a mixture of both. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, and the way you glorify God is try not to offend people. Now, that may be different from a, the, um, an upbringing you had, especially if you grew up in the church, which is, you know, we want to proclaim the gospel, and we're not worried about who it will offend. And that's true. The gospel does offend some people. But as I said in the beginning, sometimes it's us offending people. And we don't want the gospel message to be compromised because we're offensive people. That's really important. Being sensitive. Having an apologetic sensitivity. And sometimes that can be frustrating because sometimes people do things that make you angry. And you want to, you want to blast them. You want to say things that you know are right. But being sensitive for the sake of the gospel is right. It's a way to glorify God. Now here's a statement I want you to remember. True freedom is freedom from the tyranny of self. True freedom is freedom from the tyranny of self. In other words, having, having to do what you want to do. Liberty is being able to do what you want. Tyranny is having to do it. I may enjoy something, but in your presence, if it offends you, I don't do it. I'm free to do it, and I'm free not to do it. True freedom is self-giving, not self-indulging. And it's meant to glorify God. And this is where the Reformation comes in because Christians were bound by the medieval church's strictures of repentance and penance and all of the different levels of getting right and having the treasury of merit appropriated. So in case you're not familiar, the treasury of merit is this idea that Christ not only shed enough blood on the cross to forgive sins, but he had an abundance, a superabundance of merit in his life and death and resurrection. And so the church had this treasury, this kind of like imaginary treasury, that they could hand out grace as much as they want. They, they, could, they could dispense grace because they had so much of it left over. And this is where indulgences came from. The church said, look, we've got all the grace. You need it, so give some money. That was what indulgences was. Give some money, and the church will give you some grace so that your excess sins can be taken care of. Um, every um, time a coin in the coffer um, rings, a soul from purgatory springs, that was kind of the saying that grew out of the Reformation. So the doctrines of grace... Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, 
was liberating, but this necessary doctrine, the glory of God alone, meant, yes, you're free, but use that freedom for God's glory. I mean, I could end the sermon right now and walk away because that's the message. Yes, you're free, but use that freedom. The purpose of using our liberty carefully and selflessly is to glorify God, not ourselves. Now, I love the Westminster Confession's first question. What is the chief end of man? And what's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the chief purpose of man. They got it right. They got it right. I mean, they nailed it. That's the chief purpose of man and woman, mankind. That's That's our chief goal in this life, is to glorify God. All things God does is for his glory. The creation of the cosmos. Human beings. All things are created for his glory. The high mountains above the ocean and the high mountains underneath the waters and the deep caverns, you know, Challenger Deep, you know, that place in the ocean where it's like 35,000 feet deep. All of those things are meant to glorify God. God is jealous for his own glory. And if there's one thing God wants from you, it's to glorify him. God has so graciously provided us with salvation and redemption in his son. And what does he want in return? He wants us to glorify him with with our lives. And then finally, there's the pattern of Christian freedom. Verse 33, he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul wants to see people saved. That they may be saved. And so he says, Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. Now, if you grew up on the King James Version, you're used to hearing it, Follow me as I follow Christ. We take that statement and we just kind of divorce it from the the passage, but the whole context is Paul is saying, I don't do things for my advantage. I do it for others so that they can be saved. So imitate me because I'm actually imitating Jesus Christ because he's the one who didn't live a life of selfish advantage, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of obedience unto death. This emptying. Jesus not exploiting the privileges and the rights he had as the son of God, didn't do that, but wanted to see others saved and humbled himself. And Paul is saying, imitate me because I'm actually just imitating Jesus Christ. I don't do things for my own advantage only. I want to see other people saved, others saved. So there's this supreme example of using one's liberty to glorify God, Jesus Christ is that example. For Paul, that's the rule, the model to emulate. Not seeking your own interests only, but that of others. We should try to, like Paul says, please everyone in everything we do. And you know, that can feel exhausting. That can feel hard. But it's, it's the message that we're given. It's the charge we're given. Is it hard work? Yes. Is it necessary for the gospel to go forward? Absolutely. Seems impossible, but it's not. 
Every time you look at yourself and see yourself struggling with this, you need to look at Christ ten times. Because you'll fail at it. And I fail at it. And we fail at it. We fail to live selfless lives, always seeking the benefit of others. But we need to look to Christ. Jesus did it. He did it successfully. He's our model. He's our example. Paul certainly thinks that. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's pray.